90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty well. How about yourself? Not terrible. It has been an interesting few weeks for us. You know, we've shared some of it on here of just random things that have gone wrong and uh now we have appliances failing so yeah uh, it's, it's been an interesting few days trying to get uh failing refrigerators replaced over holiday weekend so if i would think that anyone would have this did you buy the refrigerator that's got the the, the screen in it that will like sync to your devices no oh my daughter would be so disappointed in you <laughs> No, in fact, when we were looking for the replacement fridge, we both were saying, like, we want the simplest, yep. oldest school. <laughs> like, I don't want anything that fails and is expensive. Uh, <laughs> man, we were just lamenting how old we feel, and I feel like that drives it home right there. <laughs> well, it's, it's one of those things, if you're tired of spending money on things that aren't exciting... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it's just a refrigerator. Do I really need to do all of those things? Like it kind of blows my mind that those exist at all. But we have an old house. So our house was built in the 60s. And so the slot for the refrigerator is pretty small. So we are very limited in our choices, which at first I was mad about. And then I thought, no, this is just fine. <laughs> yep. So we. Like, I'm excited about spending money on, you know, things that I can put in my truck or whatever but, yeah or tools like always more tools <laughs> cool. yes <laughs> you know that pain i sure do yep <laughs> when my daughter draws pictures that say race car parts on them and hands them to my husband yeah i know that pain because <laughs> that's all, <laughs> all he ever asks for race car parts <laughs> yep yep so, like, that's fun stuff to spend money on. Not fun stuff is, you Yeah, know, refrigerators or... Refrigerators, lawnmower parts. Oh, gosh. And let me tell you, lawnmower tires are really expensive. Not to sound old, but my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the other reason we're old is I'm going to ask next about... Did you guys get any of the thunderstorms last night? <laughs> Man, just enough to make us mad. Yeah, exactly, right? I saw all the lightning. I heard thunder for hours, and we <laughs> barely got a few drops of rain. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, that was a, yeah, that was a tease of a storm for sure. I will say, like, the, the golden hour afterwards, though, there was, like, some mammatus that were coming down, and they were just highlighted in the sunset with, like, mega lightning off behind them. It was pretty beautiful though well see we didn't even get that because oh. it was 1 a.m when it rolled oh that's here. right yeah yeah you guys got it pretty late mm-hmm. we were enjoying the last of the pool days outside and we had to evacuate due to thunder so yep right about time well, to roll it up i mean continuing on the theme of we're old i am now that crazy patient for one of my medical practitioners <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to hear this. <laughs> so we have been stuck with a problem at the shop of we need to drill a hole in this very expensive, very precise piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. And we can't hit any wires that are in it. And we don't know where they are. 
<clears throat> okay. <laughs> and so this ended up me going down the rabbit hole of calling my dentist, asking if they'll x-ray this piece of equipment for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's a, like, how did that conversation go? <laughs> well, first there was some silence. <laughs> and then I think we kind of got the idea down. Mm-hmm. But uh, they had the very good point of I'm trying to see copper wires with plastic coating on them, and mm. they're inside a stainless steel case. So. And that the x rays would probably be less likely to pass through the stainless than they would the wires. Right. So we're probably not actually, wouldn't actually be able to see the wires. Oh, that's too bad. So we ended up not being able to x ray it. Uh, but it was a fun conversation. <laughs> and now I'm pretty sure I'm on the list of, you know, watch out for this one. You got an asterisk next to your name. <laughs> yeah. the uh, Well, you know the car talk guys. Yes. Mm-hmm. They would always say on their shop form, they had a bunch of abbreviation boxes, and one of them was W. And if you checked it, it was for wacko. Uh, <laughs> I, I have the W box checked. Uh, that just means they're excited to see you when you show up, though. Yeah, I I'm mean, sure. I'm, I'm very curious how my next visit's going to go. Maybe I'll bring something to x-ray. You absolutely should. I, he's probably disappointed, actually. I think my dentist would be so excited to have this <laughs> opportunity. So, yeah, you should bring an offering for sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, <laughs> and these are the conversations we were talking before we started recording. These are the conversations that we get to have in daily life, and they're weird. I, <laughs> and I said, that's why you've been friends for so long, and will continue to be so, because you need the friend that has these weird conversations, that you can just, like, call up and say that thing to and just be done with the conversation, right? And you're like, yeah. Yep. Yep. That's this. That's this podcast. <laughs> for years. Oh, so many years. Except for this week. We probably wouldn't talk as long, you know, about this topic because, well, yeah. Because I would hang up. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be nice, but you're exactly right. You wouldn't listen to me talk, but now you have to, so. <laughs> okay, so what are we talking about this week? So, in the news, there's all this stuff about Burning Man, right? That festival out in Nevada and how all these people got stuck out there. Because it rained. <laughs> right. And, like, it didn't, like, it flooded the area, but it only rained. And I looked this up. It was only, like, a quarter inch or something ridiculous. Which <laughs> around here wouldn't even show. Wouldn't even a little bit, right? And so there was all this, everyone is stuck there, and these cars totally covered in in mud and everything. And so that got me thinking because that's, you know, in the storm chasing world, you never go down a dirt road, even if it's just barely starting to rain, right? They call it gumbo because those clays in the dirt roads around here anyway, turn into this big sticky mess. And so Burning Man is out in the Black Rock Desert in Nevada. It's in a playa, which is an ancient lake bed. Yeah. Full of clay, and it made me think that maybe we should talk about this weird thing in sedimentology that we just call mud rocks. Okay, so this sounds like rocks that are made out of things that are very small particles. 
Right, exactly. I mean, obviously there's massive amounts of distinction in the word mud rocks because we couldn't just leave it there, right? I'm sure there are subclasses of mud rock. I can't wait. So many. I didn't even actually get into all of them. But in general, so mud rocks are these siliciclastic sed rocks. And of course, you know, we say things like sandstone, but we have to always remember sand is a size. And so for mud rocks, the size range is 0.0625 millimeters, which we call silt. That's the biggest of the mud rocks and down to less than 0.0039 millimeters, which is clay. And that's tiny. So, so tiny, (laughs) which is why these things get lumped into this overarching title of mud rocks, right? But as I said, there's clearly more than that. (laughs) But siltstone and claystone are the most, well, I don't know if they're, they're probably not the most common, but they're the most um, intuitive as to what they're made of, right? And so siltstone, 50% or more silt-sized particles, that's the big ones, big in quotations because it's 0.0625 millimeters at the high end, uh, to claystones, which are made up of 50% clay-sized particles. Right. So those have it in the name. But mudstone, well, mud's <laughs> not a size. No, not really. Um, so here, mudstone, and this is where it's not an exact science, right? So <laughs> if your siliciclastic said rock that is less than 0.0625 millimeters is like a third to two-thirds made up of clay-sized particles and it's massive... And what I mean by massive is it doesn't have internal structures. It's well indurated. So it's just a big chunk. That's what you would call a mudstone. Okay. Mm-hmm. Makes sense, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As opposed to a clay silt sized particle rock that has laminations or is fissile. And this one's a much more common name. And so that's what we would call shales. Shale, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it gets those laminations, right, from a physical process. So now I'm now I'm interested again, right? We're getting to structure, <laughs> sort of. Uh, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> right, so you're compacting. Clays are these long plate-like particles. Mm-hmm. And as you're compacting the rock, the lowest energy state is for those to be sub-horizontal. And so you get all these layers or paper-looking-like structures. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so now, instead of being well-indurated, that word induration gets used a lot by field students, but <laughs> it has a place, and it means, you know, if you hit it, what does it look like? Is it going to be a big chunk? And so shale will break along those laminations, just like you said, because of that's where these clays are and i think we'll probably we will probably get into this a lot more next week because there's an awful lot to say about mud rocks but there's still one more and that's when you start to compact these bad boys enough that you start to heat them up right and so now you get close to the metamorphous metamorphic type 
rocks, and so you can have slate or what you'll sometimes see it called argillite. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's not a common name for me, but... No, in, in no, your not at all. <laughs> I mean, sort of. So there are kind of cycles of interest in mud rocks through the years, right? Um, they also have these old names called uh, politic sediments or pelites and then argillaceous sediments, which I actually use that word quite a bit. So I just use that for like clay type rocks. Um, and so these different cycles of interest have to do with technologies to investigate these rocks because these are not things that you can look at and tell with your eye what the composition is, what almost what anything is <laughs> with your yeah, eye. Your grain size card doesn't do any good here. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, really, the only, <laughs> the only thing that you can do out in the field, instead of just saying mud rock, right? You should be able to see laminations in a shale. Um, but the difference in, say, a claystone and a siltstone, and this is truly what we do, is you put it in your mouth. And if you can feel grains at all, like on your teeth or your tongue, that's still a siltstone. And if it melts in your mouth, not deliciously, but it does melt, <laughs> then you're looking at a claystone. Or you chip off a piece and bring it back to your laser particle size analyzer. (laughs) It takes so long when you can just lick it. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that my two graduate students that um, graduated this May did get me a coffee cup and it has my name on it and it has like a rock on it and it says, have you tried licking it? (laughs) So (laughs) this is where you would do it though. (laughs) Because this is totally how you tell tell the difference between them. Um, <laughs> this is really great in the field. This is my favorite thing to do, especially not in a geology class. So in like an intro geology field trip or something like that, because everyone immediately is uh, massively disgusted <laughs> when you're right. like biting off pieces of these rocks. And you say, in your geology career, this is on the lower end of disgusting things that you'll deal with. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Much worse things to do. Um, But this frequently comes up because mud rocks are the dominant type of sedimentary rock. So, you know, by weight in the earth, igneous rocks make up, you know, 75% or 80% of the earth, but here on the crust, said rocks are like 75% of what we have. And the majority of those, I think it's something like 55% of those said rocks are in fact mud rocks. Which makes sense because most of the time we're going to really weather something down before we get rid of it. Yes, exactly. Which is where they come from. Um, so like I said, they're kind of hard to study and the hard to study part comes along with you know, when we have these technology advances, we can see them because like you just said, John, these weather away really easily and therefore they're not the things you see on the mountaintop. They're not the thing you see, you know, a prominent outcrop. These are the valleys. These are the things covered up by vegetation. And so a lot of times you got to dig for them. (laughs) And that's, that's a lot of work when you can just go look at that igneous rock that's already poking out over there. 
I remember coming from teaching at field camp when I started grad school in Pennsylvania, and our first class was called Issues in Geoscience, which was sort of like the Welcome to Grad School 101 class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the activities is more of a team-building activity, not so much a mapping activity, but you're supposed to go out and make a map of this area. And some of the things, I'm like, what do we take like a strike and dip on? There's nothing. <laughs> and they're like, we see that little thing sticking out of the trail <laughs> that's like the size of a deck of cards. Like, how about that? Oh, man. And that was one of the easier striking dips. Most of it was kind of like, well, let's hold the compass up to the landscape. And <laughs> See, and you were in Pennsylvania, a place that a lot of people might associate with a lot of topography, but there's also a lot of vegetation, and so that makes it very, very difficult. It makes you happy for much of Oklahoma and how easy it is, right? <laughs> right, which is funny because learning there, you're like, oh, there's so much vegetation. And then you got to Colorado and you're like, oh, yeah, there is so much vegetation there. And you realize that that's about 1% of the areas you'll Ex- ever map. That's <laughs> exactly, <is> exactly right. <laughs> I took a class to um, Hot Springs, Arkansas, and this is what they ran into because they were like, where's the outcrops? I'm like, man, you got to move these dead leaves off the trail and just hope you find one. So, but we digress. <laughs> As hard as but we it, digress. <laughs> as yeah. hard. So, so these are hard to hard to find. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you've got to look at them really close with lasers or electrons, generally. Right, and so there's all kinds of cool things to do. You can use, you know, X-ray diffraction, and you can mm-hmm. kind of use that to tell the differences in between the clays. Even though there's some problems with that that we'll discuss, um, and we have discussed um, with Dr. Andy Elwood Madden. And so that's episode 304. If you want to go back, he's a clay expert that does this um, kind of investigations on clays. Um, One thing that we did a lot of was, well, we sent them out, but um, the university that shall not be named north of us has a CT scanner. And so we'd scan our little cores and you can see a lot of these structures inside these mudstones that look like they're structureless, Um, but they do come out. Um, if you x-ray them. So that's kind of cool. Right. Mm-hmm. And so then, that's part of why. And then, you know, a lot of them are not even on land, right? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so like the majority of these mud rocks are deposited in the deep ocean. And as we know, we know nothing about that place. So that makes them hard to study. Yes, very. <laughs> but easy to make, right? Um this like final weathering product that is all of these sizes you know you see this stuff it's frequently in the breakdown of bedrock becoming soils um you'll get clays and mudstones in that situation any kind of volcanic ash which is not such a big deal here but we do have volcanic ash layers like in the panhandle of oklahoma those are left over from the um from the yellowstone like the last yellowstone eruption you see volcanic ash, and then you see even older stuff, which is called bentonite. Um, and that's the really, really sticky clays, is if you have bentonites anywhere. That stuff will gum up any sort of works in terms of construction or anything like that. And you can't get any water through them at all. So that I know that in some parts of the world, this is a really big problem because you can't flow water through bentonites. They're real gushy. They expand. They're awful. 
So those can be a problem that falls into this big mud rock, as well as the process of glaciation. Like, you can make clay from a glacier. They're great grinders. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And when you look up glacial clay, which I did to Google, oh my gosh. <laughs> this was super funny to me because I didn't really think about this. You know, your rock flower that you always played with in your deformation experiments. Um, <laughs> you get this from glaciers, but man... Why didn't you ever collect some glacial clay and sell it? Because these beauty products made with glacial clay are crazy expensive. Interesting. Like, we're talking 80 bucks. This one is 0.8 ounces, and it is $79. Hmm. Uh-huh. This one's 6 ounces, which is a lot. $170. Well, glacial is just meaning formed by ice, yeah? Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I can use a blender and some ice cubes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go. It's insanity. <laughs> um, so that is one way you can get them. And final weathering products, right, are these tiny little guys. They weren't studied. They were just called mud rocks until we made some of these advances with these CT scans with XRDs. Um, and also they got a little bit more interesting when we started to extract uh, hydrocarbons directly from them, right? Like, we've always known shale is a source rock. But when we started to say, hey, why don't we skip the middleman? Used to, we'd have to bury shale, and it's got a lot of organics in it, right? It happens under the ocean or in soils. And so cooking that as you buried it makes oil and gas if you cook it long enough. And we would wait for that to migrate into, say, a sandstone or something with a lot of porosity and permeability. And then we would extract it. And then we came up with some technologies, um, fracking in particular, that makes oil shale both source rock and reservoir rock. <laughs> and therefore, lots of study now went into mudstones when this started happening. Yeah, we need to know the mechanical properties so we know how we can frack them. Uh, what can we, how can we modify it with different propens, with different fracking fluids, all kinds of stuff. Uh-huh. It's actually, it's very actually interesting to me is, yeah, breaking rocks and getting all their juices out for them. But actually, I mean, that's sort of a new thing. I know that there was fracking way, way, way back when. They'd use dynamite. They'd just, you know. Um, but... In but since it's been popularized. Exactly. <laughs> it's more common now. We were talking about field camp, and so next to our field camp is Florence, Colorado. And the oil field there was drilled in the 1800s, in the early 1900s, and it was exclusively within a shale. This was kind of ahead of its time because these were just conventional vertical oil wells, but the pier shale, um, spelled Pierre, pronounced Pierre, was made during the Cretaceous Interior Seaway. It's like 10,000 feet thick, so it is a lot of organics that were being made on that um, Epirix Sea, and therefore they were just producing directly out of it way back then. Right, because, I mean, it's almost as good as a horizontal well when yeah. you have 
Tactic of a formation. That is exactly that is exactly right. And it was really close to the surface. I mean it it outcrops in Florence. Um, but that's how prolific that that um that that unit is. And so again, not a ton of study because if you poke an oil in it and get oil, they didn't care to study it. But when we started doing these horizontal wells and really exploiting oil shales, then that became a big interest. And we, of course, when we have something like this, that's really kind of enigmatic because we can't see it. We got to have really high powered microscopes and all that jazz. What do we do? We name it 9,000 different things. <laughs> right. Classification <laughs> schemes. Right. And so I'm not even going to talk about the official classification schemes. Um, I'm sure we will get into that in the next few weeks as we continue to talk about this. But just like any other rock, like this is how you can classify them, right? You can classify them by grain size if you have the means to figure out the grain size, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've got your LPSA or your microscope or whatever, uh, you could use a simpler instrument, your eye, and classify it by color. Right, exactly. And as you can imagine, the color here isn't super extensive. I mean, well, you may think that it's not super extensive, but there are these official color charts for sedimentary rocks. And, man, when you start to talk about the color of a shale, I have a friend that was the um, mapper for this USGS program called State Maps. So it's just looking at every state's geologic maps and going out and the differences in the descriptions would be things like, is this gray-green or green-gray? Yep. (laughs) Is it yellow-gray-green? And so you might say, well, what colors are there? There's like 50 different colors, basically ranging from like green to brown to tan to black. It's like watching students at field camp classify and describe a rock color with their sunglasses on. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly right. The lighting can change. Your oh. glasses can change. It's a very hard thing to pin down. Mm-hmm. Especially if they're polarized. Um, yeah. So there's charts that you carry with you and you have a whole bunch of little color swatches with the official USGS color on them. And you put your little clay on there, and that's how you do it. <laughs> yep. Uh, if you've got fancy instruments, you can also talk about the chemical composition or the mineralogy of the rock. Right. Exactly. So we always say not to use color, but color does lend a little bit towards this. Um, and so you can make a stab at some of them, but not most of them. That's for things like XRDs or XRFs. Um now, this one, the next one is like the easy way out, which I love, is that we're not going to talk about the mud part. We're going to talk about the ones that we can see. And so, therefore, we can classify the mud rocks based on the minerals that are in the silt fraction of the grain sizes. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you could take that way out. Or this is the even even worse way out, which I've actually never really seen anything described this way, but you can talk about the associated said rocks. So you can say the mud rocks associated with the conglomeratic facies of blah, blah, blah formation. Um, 
So sometimes you'll see that in the literature too. Right. Yeah. But if you want to talk about process, right, that's naming them and sort of where they come from. But clays and mud rocks in general can tell you a lot about the diagenetic alteration that has happened to a rock. And that's pretty cool. Which is just a fancy way to say that after it was deposited, things happened to it. And this is the story of that rock. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, you talked about compaction earlier, making the um, the little paper layers that you think of when you think of shale. And so when you squish those mud rocks down, those clays become aligned and you can see that. But what's even more fun is if you move beyond just burying them and start to, you know, squish them from the sides. <laughs> and then you can see a lot of cool stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. So those little clays will bend and you'll have, it's actually really awesome because in the microscope field of view, it almost looks like its own little mountain range. Um, because those clays will move around. Um, and it's easy if you think about a big stack of rocks and you have a really thick shale section or mud rock section. Well, shale in general. Um, that's the thing that's going to move around a lot more than, say, like a mud stone or a limestone or a sandstone, which would tend to break. Um, so you can get a lot of structural information because a lot of that stress is taken up in shale layers. Um, and so that's something that has been fairly-ish recent um, to look at mud rocks and talk about the structural and diagenetic histories. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that's it. That was just, I saw, I saw a, <laughs> an article about this Lake Lahontan, which was the... 15,000 year old lake that um, that is in the Black Rock Desert of Nevada where Burning Man was and I thought hmm let's talk about those rocks <laughs> right so that's <laughs> I mean inspiration for shows comes from everywhere mm-hmm. I will say I did read that article a couple of days ago and the thought did just come to me to do this Today. So you're saying it was a subconscious choice? I think so. I think that's what I'm saying. Well, that takes us into everybody's favorite segment of the show. <laughs> Fun Paper Friday. Yay! And it's cowbell rotation time. So now I'm back. I've got the handmade metal bell that Tim sent to me. <laughs> Tim cowbell time. So we, we put uh, Steve's cowbell to rest for the moment and brought this one out. Another one of those weird conversations. We were talking about getting our our box of cowbells out and <laughs> rotating. Oh, exactly. I have Doug's cowbell, so we'll have to, yeah. When Tim's is done, we'll move to Doug's, and then we'll uh, go back again. <laughs> exactly. Ah, ah. And we have the travel cowbell, too, the carbon fiber one. That is right. That's a great one. Oh, man. Um, so, again, we digress. <laughs> but... Choosing between cowbells leads right into on making the right choice, the deliberation without attention effect. Which accurately describes how some choices have been made recently for me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is great. Um, I can't say this author. I was going to hope you were going to. Um, 
dextrous at all. At all. Uh huh. (laughs) And this is from Science in 2006. And I was actually reading a book that mentioned this paper, and I thought, well, that sounds really interesting. And then I went down the rabbit hole of getting this paper, and this is really cool. I mean, it makes sense, but I think that it is a really cool experiment. I thought you would appreciate the elegantness of the experimental methods i do and i see applications in this multiple places in life mm-hmm. exactly this is so interesting and so they looked at it seems like if you're going to make a decision you should think about it long and hard and then you'll make the right decision but that's not how our brains work, which was amazing. Only if it's a simple decision mm-hmm. does critical and direct thinking. But once the decision space becomes complex with many variables, you're better off to, what do you always tell me you're going to do? <laughs> Sleep on it? Sit on it? Cogitate on Cogitate. it? Cogitate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you're better off to let it roll around for a little bit. Mm-hmm. But not... Roll around and think about it. This is this was the coolest part of this experiment to me. So um, not only are they trying to gauge, like, how did you make the right choice or the best choice, um, but they also asked, are you happy with your choice? Um, and so they had three groups and then progressively complex questions, right? And so when they talked about this conscious deliberation, I'm going to give you, or they gave the people, you know, this, what was one of this, the complex ones was like something about buying a car, right? And Yeah, so, they had cars with a few parameters or cars with a lot of specs. Right, exactly. So you had to choose like which, which made the most sense, right? And so there was a correct choice of this car would be the right one to make. And so they had, gave the parameters to people let them think about it and said, you've got, you know, X number of minutes and then you're going to make your decision. And then they had a group of people that said, okay, here we're going to present all these parameters to you about these cars. And in X number of minutes, you're going to make your decision. But in that interim, you're not going to think about that. What you're going to do is solve these like semi easy ish, like brain teaser puzzles. And so you're not going to have a lot of time. And as soon as you're done with the puzzles, we're going to ask you which car you want. What? (laughs) And they did better. They did better. They even did better than the people that said, we're going to come back in a day and ask you which car you want. It was the ones whose minds were busy doing something else and were completely allowing the subconscious to make the decision. Not only made better decisions, but they were happier with the decisions they made. What you're saying is I should take a Sudoku with me next time I go to buy a car. That's exactly right. Or or a refrigerator. (laughs) Uh, There was not a lot of conscious. There was some reading reviews and going, well, it's a roll the dice either way. (laughs) Oh, man. Isn't that, I mean, I would have never guessed that. And actually, I was listening to this book. It was an audio book. And I was listening to it and I answered it. And I said, oh, well, of course, like the people that sat and thought about it for a few days made the best decision. And it was like, no, the people that thought about it for a little while, but were busy with their conscious mind 
made the best decisions. And it's because as things got more complex, you're, uh, there was a really weird word that they used for this um, in terms of like, basically your conscious mind can only hold so much. And so therefore it can't take into account all the complex parameters, even if you're sitting there making it try to do so. You have to let that go to your unconscious that can handle all that stuff in the background. Right. And one of the experiments, they did several experiments in here, but one I really liked, they looked at different items that you might go buy. Mm -hmm. And like shampoo, you were more likely to be happy with your choice if it was a conscious decision. You read the labels and you go, I like the smell of this. I don't like the smell of this. Mm-hmm. Or whatever. Right. Um, CDs, music. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, shoes. You have to think about it. Do I like the color of the shoe? Do I like the way the shoe feels? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was the crossover point. Things like a plane ticket or cameras or where you're going to live. We're better off unconsciously decided. You were more satisfied with your choice. So interesting. Hmm. And the same with one of the experiments they looked at stores. Like uh, a store with a lot of choices, you did better unconsciously choosing. Whereas a store was just a couple of choices, it was better for you to consciously choose. So cool. Yeah. This was very interesting. And like the results, which this science paper only has bar graphs and little box and whisker plots. Um, it's very clear. I don't need the statistical numbers to know. Right? Like it's very clear where that crossover happens and like the increasing complexity allowing your uh, capacity. Yeah. It says that your conscious brain has a low capacity. So the difference between shoes and plane tickets was too much for your conscious brain and that's where you let your unconscious take over right yeah i thought this was exceptionally interesting and was antithetical to what i would have predicted yeah so really if it's a hard decision to make you should just not think about it for a little bit yep exactly but Fantastic. if it's an easy decision to make like listening to our podcast <laughs> that's a conscious decision and uh make it right away <laughs> you should make it right away and your next conscious decision we haven't asked for this in a while but is to go leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice so other people can find us yes please do so and also it makes us feel good when they're nice <laughs> it's true and you know if you leave a review and Want some stickers? We can make that happen. Just drop us a line. Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us? You sure can. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on X, previously known as Twitter. Uh, we are at don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. And as always, if you would like to support us, you can do so. Patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.